Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. It's exhilarating. It's like driving a car under an avalanche, but you're taunting the avalanche rather than trying to get away from it. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello. Let us imagine for a moment our home galaxy, the Milky Way. Our galaxy is one among billions in the universe, clumped together in clusters and superclusters. But even our humble local cluster contains up to a trillion stars. That's a mammoth task for astronomers trying to map the heavens to learn what's out there. And it puts into perspective the achievements of my guest today, the man responsible for first identifying a black hole called Cygnus X1. Paul Murden spent much of his career at the Royal Greenwich Observatory, working with astronomers around the world and some of the most advanced telescopes ever built. He headed up the astronomy section of the UK's Particle Physics and Astronomy Research Council and was Director of Science for the British National Space Centre. He even has an asteroid named after him. This catalogue of achievements is testament to the fact that Paul has never let his disability hold him back. A leg brace and walking sticks have been part of his life since contracting polio at the age of six. But those childhood months in hospital sparked Paul's love of reading and was also where he developed his vibrant imagination, something he believes is key to being a successful astronomer. He says, I have more trouble getting about than most people. But in astronomy, the restrictions under which I operate are irrelevant. Astronomy has let me see, in reality, views from the top of the world and, through my imagination, sights that are out of it. Paul Murden, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you. I mentioned you discovered the first black hole, Cygnus X1. We'll come to the science behind that in a moment. But as an astronomer looking for for peculiarities among many billions of stars, how do you decide where to look? Well, the key part is to find a peculiarity that's not common, but that signifies that something exciting is happening. And um, my approach there was to look for stars that X-rays are coming from. X-rays are extremely energetic and different from everything else that goes on in the rest of the stars. So if you see X-rays coming from a star, it's like a flag that the star is waving at you saying, look at me, look at me, I'm interesting. Mm. You've often talked about the need for astronomers, indeed scientists more generally, to have imagination. Why is that so important? Well, as the typical stars that uh, you study in the galaxy are many thousands of light years away. You've got clues that nature gives you about how to interpret what's there, but you've got to do the interpreting. Mm. It's your imagination that's got to look at all of those things that you can sense about that star and put them into some sort of story, create some sort of picture of what's going on. And that's the part that's really fun. It's like a detective story. Well, that imagination is something you clearly had in abundance as a child, Paul Murden. You were born in Croydon, in Surrey in 1942, in a house on a council estate where your grandmother lived during the First World War. Then your mother and father moved in ahead of the Second World War. But at the age of six, you caught polio, as I mentioned in the introduction, and you ended up being sent away to an isolation hospital for over a year. What do you remember of that experience? Well, I remember the, uh, the journey in the swaying ambulance as we drove from my house to uh, the isolation hospital. 
and uh, the rather claustrophobic small room with one bed in it that I was in it had a sort of a big picture window um, that my parents could peer in and see if I was okay. I, I was there for several weeks, um, and then there was a long process of rehabilitation when I learned to walk again. A lot of physiotherapy, a lot of lying in bed, a lot of thinking, why me, why me? Um, and uh, then the realization that it was luck and you just had to get on with it. Mm. But I was in and out subsequently um, for periods uh, during my teenage years with various operations and such that people wanted to do. I know that when you were in hospital and bedbound, your parents brought you lots of books and those books opened new worlds for you. There were books that my parents brought, which were sort of based on requests that I'd made. Um, but there was also a sort of travelling library that came around. And, of course, the, the selection was not of my choice. It meant that I read a lot of books that I otherwise wouldn't have done. And that meant that I picked up the habit of reading voraciously whatever's available. And I think that's contributed to the general knowledge and breadth of mm. knowledge that I've got. And when you got back home, reliant on a leg brace, walking sticks, which you've used ever since, how did you adapt to being back home or in fact going off back to school your situation so changed from before well i was often parked on one side with a sedentary group when um, the other boys were out on the playing fields kicking a ball about um, i got parked with the girls who were doing um, knitting and so on so uh, what knitting skills i retain i originated <laughs> with me at that time very important skill well at school you were able to explore your growing passion for science but you also discovered a love for astronomy. Yes, in the school grounds on the playing fields in a far away corner, there was um, a strange little structure that housed a telescope, belonged to a local astronomical society. And that was my first introduction to astronomy. So you joined this astronomical society's junior branch. And I gather that it was through this group that you met the late Sir Patrick Moore, who lived nearby and used to come and speak at meetings. Yes, we met in somebody's front room and uh, usually listened to a talk or um, discussed something that was in the news. Patrick Moore, from time to time, came to these events. And in the course of conversation one time, he invited me to participate in a TV program he was running. He had a series, it was a kind of junior Sky at Night program, it's called Seeing Stars. And he decided to do a program about making a little spectacle lens telescope and what you could see with it. And since I'd just done something like that and had talked to him about it, he said, why don't you come along, Paul, and you can be, my, as it were, my stooge. Mm. Uh, and so that, that's what happened. And um, a, a publisher decided that they wanted to publish a children's book on this topic, approached Patrick to write the book, and Patrick very generously said that um, he would write the astronomy bits and I could write the making of telescope bits, which is what happens. So I published my first popular book on astronomy at the age of 17. That's pretty good going, isn't it? And, and your relationship with Patrick Moore continued for many years, right up to his death in 2013. Yes, indeed. Yes, he was very generous with his time and um, even more generous with encouragement. Mm. Um, and he was, in fact, well known for that uh, across the whole of the range of young people that he met. Well, in 1960, Paul, you went to Oxford to study physics. How did you find university life? A um, bit difficult. Uh, the polio did get in the way. There was the problem of uh, getting around the university campus, 
and that was a, that was a bit tiring. But university life in general, you thoroughly enjoyed. I and, loved and, the university <laughs> life, amateur dramatics, music, just everything. And uh, it was there that I met my future wife, my wife now, uh, Leslie. Your plan, I gather, had been to become a school teacher. But that changed after your final summer at university when you took up an eight-week residential course at the Royal Greenwich Observatory, which was by then based at Hurstmanstow in Sussex. It was based at Hurstmanstow in a, a castle. Mm. And in the mornings, you would attend lectures given by members of the staff. And in the late morning and afternoon, you'd work on some scientific project. My project was to do with a star cluster. I had to measure the positions of stars on a photograph. And it was one of a large series of photographs that had been taken of the cluster. And if you measure the positions of the stars very accurately, you can tell where the stars are moving. And that, in the end, can give you something like the orbit of this cluster of stars through the galaxy. And it completely blew my mind that out of such a prosaic picture, basically a collection of black dots, you could do something like determine a cluster as it orbited through our galaxy. I mean, what could be more surprising? And that meant that when at the end of the course, the Astronomer Royal called me in and said, uh, what are you planning to do, Murdin? And I said, I only had a thought of being a school teacher. He said, no, 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 no. Come and work for us. And that was your career path from then on? Yes, it was. And it revealed to me um, uh, in part that uh, although I'd missed the boat for doing a PhD in England because of the, of the timetables and so on, I really did want to do a PhD because I could see from the other members of staff in the observatory that those with a PhD were getting to run their own lives and investigate interesting things. And that's when I applied on the advice of an American astronomer who was there to go to a university in the United States and study for a PhD there. That was in 1964 that you, you went over to America with your wife, Leslie. And this was in New York, University of Rochester. Yeah. Well, after that PhD, Paul Murden, you and Leslie came back to the UK with then your young sons, Ben and Alexander. Your daughter, Louisa, was born soon after you settled back here. And you resumed working at the Royal Greenwich Observatory as a senior research fellow now. And that's when you started the work that led to the discovery of Cygnus X-1. I gather it all began with some powerful cosmic X-rays. Yes, an American group of astronomers led by Riccardo Giacconi had started X-ray astronomy, investigated through the X-rays that stars send to us in about the 1970s. But finding which optical stars are responsible for those X-rays, quite difficult. And so I was trying to track down the responsible star for a number of X-ray sources. And I started off by thinking, well, there was an energetic process there. Everything must be hot. I'll look for things that are hot. That didn't work out for Cygnus X-1. There was nothing peculiarly hot about any of the stars that were on the candidate list for it might be this star. In fact, I got to the stage where I was kind of giving up. But then I started to work with a colleague called Louise Webster, um, who was working on double stars. And we decided together that that was the route to go down. If we couldn't see the star that was emitting the X-rays, maybe the X-rays were coming from a star that was immediately adjacent. In fact, so adjacent that the two stars were orbiting one around the other. Mm. So Louise had a program in which she measured the speed 
with which stars go round each other. This was a program measuring the, the Doppler shift of these stars. How does that tie in with these X-rays that you were measuring? So there are plenty of cases known in which you see a star which is going around nothing, as far as you can see, but it's going around a star that's invisible. It's too, too right. faint for you to see. So, so all you see is one star, but it's wobbling about. It's wobbling about. <laughs> he, he comes towards you, goes across the line of sight, goes away from you and goes around the back and round and round and round. And so we thought, well, why don't we put the potential stars that could be the source of the x-rays. Why don't we put that on Louise's observing program and see what happens? Maybe this star does have a companion and we'll see it going around it and then we'll have some idea that maybe that star was the source of the x-rays. And the measuring of the star, you know, how do you know the star's coming towards you and away from you? That's the Doppler bit. So the, the light from the star that you can see is squashed up, blue-shifted, or stretched out, red-shifted, according to whether the um, star is moving towards you or away from you. And uh, Louise and the other people who worked on the same program were measuring these little shifts, and that was what told them about the orbit of the star, and therefore other things followed that were interesting. And these measurements, what did you find out? The key thing was that there was a star in the same position of the sky as the X-ray sources, which was orbiting around something else, had a period of 5.6 days, so 5.6 days to make a complete orbit. And uh, it was a star of a particular kind that we could have a stab at getting the mass of. And because it was moving at a certain rate, you could then see what the mass of the other star was that had caused it to shift around like that. And the most important thing in that discussion was what is the mass of the other star which turned out to be pretty big more than two times the mass of the sun and that ruled out some kinds of stars that it could be couldn't be a neutron star couldn't be a white dwarf they're both like one and a half solar masses it had to be something more massive than that and that was black hole so we wrote a paper about the discovery of the companion to the star we could see and inferred at the end that it might be a black hole. I mean, black holes were known about them because they'd been predicted, you know, as long ago as Einstein developing his general theory of relativity. Uh, they're a hundred years old, yes. But they had only been theoretical predictions. No one had actually ever seen one they, they were a solution looking for a problem right and a bit of a difficulty that arose when we were sort of discussing all of this and in the observatory and writing our paper and getting permission to publish this discovery was that black holes have attracted quite a lot of mystical attention because of the uh, paradoxes that to do with black holes and the time paradoxes about going around a black hole and seeing yourself coming the other way that sort of thing <laughs> I, curious sort of um, stuff and the astronomer royal Richard Woolley didn't believe in black holes. He'd got put off by all this mystical mumbo-jumbo. Mm. So he was a bit frightened of bringing the observatory into disrepute by publishing something that was rubbish. So we had to go through a process of rewriting the paper and um, changing the emphasis before we published it. And in fact, the words black hole only appear as the last words in the, in the paper, the sentence at the end, you know, it might be a black hole. 
in a way, I think that's got a lot more literary drama to it. That it's just building up the, to that the, climax. Ar- the answer is just the final moments of the, <laughs> of the story. It might be a black hole. The crucial thing here is, I think you mentioned it, the, the, the mass of the black hole was several times the mass of our sun. And there are formulae in, in astronomy where you can work out, you know, what happens when a star runs out of its nuclear fuel, stops shining and implodes under its own gravity. Depending on how massive it is, that tells you how it's going to end up. But there's a certain critical point on mass beyond which a star just carries on collapsing. Uh, Yes, I mean, the key verb in what you just described is the word imploding. It gets very small. And for a star, roughly the mass of the sun or a few times that, the typical size is a million kilometres. But if the star contracts so that its size is measured in only kilometres rather than millions of kilometres, then it's become a black hole. And the force of gravity at its surface is extraordinarily large, so large uh, that there's a paradoxical outcome, which is that light cannot leave its surface. Hence black. Hence it's black. And it's a hole because it can never send you any messages about itself, you know, no reflected light, um, because the light gets dragged back down into the star. What about other scientists, other astronomers? How did they receive this result? It was a big success. People talked about it. The original discovery paper where Louise and I made this black hole announcement um, has been cited thousands of times because it was, as it were, foundational in the fact that now we knew that black holes were more than a theoretical possibility. They They really existed. Nature really did make them. We've seen other physicists and astronomers awarded Nobel Prizes for discoveries around black holes. There's a recent one about discovery of supermassive black holes. Did you ever think that you and Louise might have deserved the Nobel Prize? No, because what we were doing was an extremely well-trodden path. I mean, we went down a route which had been mapped out maybe 200 years before. There was nothing innovative in our methodology. We had applied well-known techniques to discover something startling. Well, Paul, following that remarkable discovery, you were invited in your role with the RGO to join the team working on the newly commissioned Anglo-Australian Telescope in New South Wales in, in Australia. And so you and your family moved out there. Could you just describe that telescope, why it was, and I guess still is, so impressive? Basically, it's big. It has a mirror which is four metres in diameter. It's in a a very tall observatory building with a dome on the top that rotates, and it moves amazingly smoothly. It was the first fully automated, full-size telescope like that. And for somebody who had polio... It was ideal because you actually, to operate it, you sat down at a desk, a control desk, and typed computer commands, and it did what you wanted. It's, at the time, the largest telescope in the Southern Hemisphere. I also gather there were some particular and rather surprising challenges to operating this extremely advanced telescope in Australia. It was a fairly rural part of New South Wales, and so you had to deal with things like bushfires, migrating insects... Uh, yes, the, the, the telescope's in what's called the Warrumbungle Mountains, on a mountaintop in the Warrumbungles. And there's a north-south pathway that um, animals and insects migrate along uh, that goes over where the observatory is. And in particular, there was a, uh, uh, a migration of uh, ladybirds that came up from the south 
travelling towards Queensland one evening, um, and uh, ladybirds got absolutely everywhere in the telescope, including onto the uh, tracks on which the dome rotated. So the wheels skidded on the <laughs> lubricant bodies of the ladybirds, <laughs> okay. and, we, and we had to shut everything down. I think it's the first time anybody has ever written in the logbook closed due to too many ladybirds. <laughs> well, Paul, after five years in, in Australia, you returned to the UK and took up the role of Principal Scientific Officer at the Royal Greenwich Observatory. But a few years later, you went overseas again to help establish an ambitious new observatory project on La Palma in the Canary Isles. Yes, my job was to coordinate the the three telescopes that the UK built on the mountaintop in collaboration with Dutch astronomers. In particular, the, the last telescope, the William Herschel telescope, has a mirror of 4.2 metres in diameter. That was the last one, the most complicated one. It was kind of like um, the Anglo-Australian telescope, um, but a sort of a more up-to-date version, better better engineering in it, more modern engineering in it anyway. Um, and one of my jobs was to give advice and be available for consultations about what that telescope should do. Mm. Well, Paul Merton, in 1987, you were called back to the RGO to head up its astronomy programme. The following year, you were awarded an OBE for your work in astronomy, but also for your efforts in science communication and the public education around astronomy, because all this time you'd also been writing and lecturing as well. I started to write um, articles um, and books following on the, the book the, the book that I wrote with Patrick and um, it turned out to be successful I mean it's a I, I got a winning formula for it which was describe the life of the astronomer who'd found something describe um, what it is they'd found and then make intelligent remarks and, um, and anecdotes about all of that I'm much <laughs> like the life scientific really it's um, really easy <laughs> Um, and so now I've got a bookshelf in my living room, which I call the Boasting Shelf, which has got a line of maybe 20 books on it that I've published about astronomy. Well, in 1990, the RGO headquarters were relocated from Hurstmanstow Castle in Sussex to a new site in Cambridge. You moved with it, but by this time there was a lot of wrangling over what should happen to the RGO and its sister organisation in Scotland, the Royal Observatory Edinburgh, or the ROE, both were overseen by a government funding agency, which was reviewing whether those two institutions should be merged together into one. And in the interim, you were appointed acting director of the ROE. I gather that was a rather difficult period for you. It was a poison chalice, really. Um, uh, there was great rivalry between the two organisations. And here was I, a, um, a member of the staff of uh, the English observatory being sent to run the scottish observatory um, e even if it was well known uh, it was only for an interim period until they decided what they were going to do um, and uh, the staff didn't take very kindly to this and i did have to um, endure some industrial action and that sort of thing it was a quite an unpleasant period but um, you know times passed the two observatories were merged together and of course slimmed down because it was a cost-saving exercise as well as an efficiency exercise, and um, it's been like that ever oh. since. 
And of course, in the meantime, there was one of those regular reshuffles of the UK science funding agencies, which sparked a series of new bodies, one of which was the Particle Physics and Astronomy Research Council, or PPARC. You were appointed its head of astronomy, as well as the director of science for the British National Space Centre. What did those roles involve? And did you enjoy them after that tricky spell in Edinburgh? They were kind of an extension of the work which I'd been doing uh, with teams of astronomers who came out to observe at the telescopes. It was about the policies that the Research Council should carry out in astronomy, either in ground-based astronomy with ground-based telescopes or in telescopes which are launched in space through the European Space Agency. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed getting hold of the essentials of what it was was required Um, and trying to convince more senior people in government that what was being done with the money was um, a good thing to do and uh, worth the substantial sums of money that it took to launch a satellite with a telescope in it or build a huge radio telescope the size of the Earth or something. In in 2002, Paul, you stepped down from the P-Park and the National Space Centre roles and your main focus was now writing. Yes, I had plenty of time to work on other books and radio programmes and so on. What do you see your role being as an author of popular astronomy books? Well, the main thing I want to do is to connect with the people who read the books. They're interested in and attracted to astronomy because it is such an attractive science, and I like to satisfy that curiosity a bit so they could feel well motivated to go on and do the things that the nation wants them to do, build better widgets and invent new kinds of transistors and so on. You've seen huge changes during your career in astronomy, changes in the technology, changes certainly in our understanding of the universe. Where does astronomy go from here? You told my producer about a telescope that's in the works that will basically span the entire solar system. Yes, there's a a fantastic project being organised by the European Space Agency, which is an interferometer of of an optical device that measures the distance between two satellites spaced millions of kilometres apart. So they're orbiting in the solar system. They're about as big as instruments could ever be. Um, And um, uh, they are able to detect uh, the oscillations of the spacecraft as the as gravitational waves pass across them. Not the entire spacecraft, actually. There's a little mirror inside each spacecraft, and it it senses the position of the mirrors. And from that, you can find out um, uh, not just where black holes are, but where black holes are merging together to form a single black hole, a bigger, a a sort of a double-sized black hole, where stars are orbiting around one another, two black holes orbiting around one another. Um, uh, so they enable you to find out many, many more things about black holes than, than otherwise. I mean, it's a, it's a mind-blowing um, idea. It's turning out to be difficult to engineer, but, you know, wouldn't be worth doing if it wasn't difficult. <laughs> Paul Murden, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thank you, Jim. There are plenty of podcasts about the latest match results, analysing the game and discussing millionaire sports stars. Amazing Sports Stories is different. It's about the underdogs. Now, some of the tryouts, you would get there and they'd say, no girls on our ice, and they wouldn't even let me try out. Those challenging authority. 
The Black Student Alliance approached us with the idea of participating in the protests against the Mormon Church. And exploring the myths and legends. Are County Mayo a great team related by mystical forces we can't quite comprehend? Yeah, yeah. You almost get suspicious that there may be some credence behind the curse. Expect the unexpected. We end up doing something really extraordinary. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts.